It's a remarkable thing that after a tremendous movement of the Holy Spirit among the people of Judah, an incredible experience, where revival took place and that nation was turned upside down, you would expect, wouldn't you, that there would be a time of peace and tranquility and good days would have now emerged. But lo and behold, the Assyrians attack. How do you explain it when you have been on the mountaintop with God and it seems as though before you can blink your eyes, you've been transported down into the valley of the shadow of death? And yet that, in essence, is what is now occurring here with the people in Judah in the 32nd chapter. As you're turning there, you're reminding yourself that last week we looked at one of the most significant and powerful expressions of revival in all of history found in that 30th chapter under Hezekiah. But it seems as though before they could even catch their breath, Here come the Assyrians, and they're on their doorstep. The Assyrians, relentless, the stories are told, the atrocities are well marked in history, the Judaites are vulnerable. You ever feel vulnerable? We pick it up in verse 1 of the 32nd chapter. After all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, catch the irony here? Let me start that again. After all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. He laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself. When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to make war on Jerusalem, he consulted with his officials and military staff about blocking off the water from the springs outside the city, and they helped him. A large force of men assembled, and they blocked all the springs and the stream that flowed through the land. Why should the kings of Assyria come and find plenty of water, they said. And then he worked hard repairing all the broken sections of the wall, building towers on it. He built another wall outside that one and reinforced the supporting terraces of the city of David. He also made large numbers of weapons and shields. He appointed military officers over the people and assembled them before him in the square at the city gate and encouraged them with these words. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him. For there is a greater power with us than with him. You should underline that. For there is a greater power with us than with him. 
With him is only the arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us. To fight our battles. And the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah, the king of Judah, said. Man's got credibility. And he's led them before God. And now they're going to have to depend upon God. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Now, Father, I want to pray right now for anybody who feels as though they live in what we might describe at this moment as threatening times. Times where it seems as though they have descended from the mountaintop into the valley so rapidly they can't even catch their breath. They've tasted the blessings, and now it seems as though they're staring at the curses of life and trying to find God. And then we process what we've just seen in this video, the God who could be found in the midst of the fog. We've got to trust the God who was there in the sunshine when we are driving through the fog of life. That you're still there. And so if there's anybody today who feels threatened, and it might be it might be something health wise. It might be something job related. It might be extended family situations and circumstances and They can't seem to remove themselves emotionally from threatening times. You are the God who in the fullness of time sent Jesus Christ into threatening times. To die on a cross to save us from our sins. He didn't avoid the threat of suffering and death. And because of that three days later he was raised raised from it and we put our faith and trust in that one who conquers so it's that tremendous sense of assurance and conviction now that drives us into this text and challenges us to build a bridge from that 701 BC moment described in these verses into the 2013 lifestyle today for us personally Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. Father, we've come here again to see Jesus and him only. We're praying these things still again now in in Jesus' name. Amen. You're watching the news over the last 72 hours, and you've noted right away that the United States has issued global travel alerts, and it's due to the Al-Qaeda threat, and that 22 embassies thus far have been closed over the course of these days. Checking some news between second and third service, I was struck with the fact that Senator Shambliss of Georgia, who of course is on the Senate Intelligence Committee, has said that we have not spotted such chatter 
pertaining to terrorism, even before 9-11. And so with all that in mind, the thinking Christian begins to ask some serious questions once again. Because we have to understand the truth of Scripture in the times in which we live and build a bridge. And the question is, why is this occurring at this particular juncture on the calendar? In our Christian Perspectives series, occasionally we've done series on the Middle East on Sunday nights or on Islam in particular. And for those that have been tracking and processing This is the 27th day of the month of Ramadan. And what is interesting about this day, Sunday, the 27th day of Ramadan, is that it is known throughout the Islamic world as the night of power. The night of power. Because they believe it's when the first verses of the Quran were revealed to their prophet Muhammad. Interestingly enough, by all of Al-Qaeda's would-be martyrs, they also view this as a significant day to die because it was the day that Osama bin Laden signed his will in December of 2001. He chose this day in Ramadan. And so now, if I am looking at the clock correctly and trying to project as to the time period right now throughout the Middle East, we're right in the last minutes, or maybe have just passed, that hour of their power. And yet at the same time, times of threats do not merely occur on a global level. They occur as well on a personal level because some of us get medical news that we don't want to hear. Or some of us go on a particular site to check our balance and we realize we're lacking what we need to pay that significant bill. And some of us are looking at a job situation that at best is precarious. And so we find ourselves, even at that very personal level, wrestling with the emotional state of what we might describe as threatening times. What we want to do is to understand that even in the days of prosperity, you've got to prepare yourself for the days of adversity. And Hezekiah understood this all too well. Why, toward the very end of that revival, in the 31st chapter in 21, verse 21, you and I are informed by Ezra that in everything that he undertook in the service of God's temple, and in obedience to the law and the commands, look at this, he sought his God. Do you do that? He sought his God and worked wholeheartedly, and so he prospered. But shades of Job, who now looks at this situation and in the midst of prosperity, pulls the trigger on a day of adversity. And so what I want to do with you now is to work with that tension of prosperity and adversity in our own personal experiences and ask ourselves, 
Why should this happen right after a time of revival? But then again, ask, why shouldn't it happen after a time of revival? Because right after our Lord and Savior was baptized, and those tremendous words, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, were uttered, our Lord was whisked away into the wilderness to be tempted by the evil one. Before you can even blink your eye. And so what we want to do now is to capture the tension here of this moment in time as the Assyrian forces who have swept away already the relatives, the ten tribes of the north, are now reemerging, and thereafter the tribes of the south, the Judah people, and they feel threatened. And maybe if you do too this morning, in some way, some shape, some form, we want to be able to cultivate from the scriptures some equippers for you to face the days in which we live. Three equippers, in fact, that I find here in these 33 verses. Three equippers. And the first is found in verse 1, down through verse 8. And we're going to put it like this, number one, that during threatening times, God's word equips us to make preparations wisely. To make preparations wisely. Have you considered how many years our Lord prepared from the point in which he entered Palestine via Bethlehem to the point in time when he began to shepherd his disciples for the day in which he would leave them? There seems to be an incredible imbalance in time between the preparations leading up to and then the actual times involved in discipling those, those individuals. Never underestimate the days of preparation in your life. If you're a student, embrace it. And don't try to rush ahead of it. Invest in it. Invest, don't waste. But invest in God, not in self. And so now, Hezekiah has been investing in God. And if we are prepared individually, then we're better prepared corporately, collectively. Ironically, in verse 1, after all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, he's a remarkable king. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. Now, Bennett is going to be speaking tonight about, about Assyria and about Nineveh. That's their capital, Nineveh. And these people are in the process now of invading not only Judah, but going after the very epicenter of it all, Jerusalem itself, under siege. You ever felt like you were in life under siege? You come here this morning basically holding your breath. Invest during the days of prosperity in preparation for the days of adversity. Because we live in a sinful world. Hezekiah did. 
And so in verse 2, when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he had intended to make war on Jerusalem, which is the city of peace, ironically, he consulted with his officials and military staff about blocking off the water from the springs outside the city, and they helped him. A large force of men assembled, and they blocked all the springs and the stream that flowed through the land. Why should the kings of Assyria come and find plenty of water, they said. When you are preparing yourself in threatening times, make certain that, like Hezekiah, you are consulting with people who are skilled in the areas in which you are currently in need. When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to make war in Jerusalem, he consulted. And so this may be a, a medical consultation. It might be a relational consultation, a pastoral consultation. In the case of the Senate Intelligence Committee right now, it is a a coming together of experts for the forms and purposes of consultation. But it's not to remain in consultation. You've got to move towards operation, which is what the book of Proverbs is all about, by the way. And so now, what Hezekiah is going to do is he's going to become a man of action, not just a man of words. And he's going to blend thought and deed together, which is what wise people do. And what does he begin to do? According to these verses, verse 3 and verse 4, he constructs a tunnel. A tunnel whereby the Gihon stream will be able to replenish the people of Jerusalem who are under siege while simultaneously keeping the Assyrian forces from being able to utilize that stream. And you say, well, Gary, can you give me a picture of it all? Well, sure, let's give it a shot. Look what comes next on the screen. As we look at what comes next, what we are going to see here is that there is this stream, and the stream is called the Gihon Stream. It's a spring. And it refreshes the people and keeps them going. Hezekiah is thinking. He makes preparations for the difficult times of life. And so should we. We consider things like advanced directives. We consider things such as insurance policies. We insure involve ourselves in such things that we invest in today to be able to handle the issues of tomorrow. What is fascinating, furthermore, is what's on the left side of your screen. He built the Siloam Tunnel from the Concealed Spring. It was an amazing feat. Workers cut an aqueduct from both ends of the course it was to take meeting in the middle. They did not have 2013 technology. All of this was about a third of a mile. And they met in the middle. And archaeological finds substantiate this. 
and excavators came from opposite directions, finally joined their respective courses with only a slight miscalculation of a few inches, possibly because they found natural fissures of limestone. But here's what's interesting furthermore. An inscription in Hebrew found near the end of this tunnel is one of America, one of this world's greatest monumental pieces of writing from this period of Judah's history in archaeological finds by some of the people from Johns Hopkins and others. And it's found now in a museum in Istanbul, Turkey. And that tunnel is available to you. Look at this next scene. Who's that? Why, that's... Our afternoon secretary. That's Kay Runge, who also evidently served as one of Jerusalem's officials in building evaluations, inspections. And I guess, according to Kay here, she's got a big smile on her face. It passed code. Passed code. She's at least knee high, if not almost up to waist high in water. But she is in Hezekiah's tunnel in her trip. To Jerusalem. She's got a smile on her face. Right now, the Jerusalem people ought to be smiling because necessary preparations were made because we don't presume on the days of prosperity that there will be no further days of adversity. And so the Hezekiahs of this world find a way to construct ahead of time to be well prepared so that they can prepare for those they love. Say, do you prepare for those you love? Do you go out of your way to make necessary preparations? You're involved in consultations. you got your sleeves rolled up because you know we are vulnerable people living in threatening times Do we do what's necessary then to make absolutely certain that those we care about are cared for? During threatening times, God's word equips us to make preparations wisely. But that's not all. Look at this next slide. Ponder the significance of that as you read from verse 5. Verse 5 says, Then he worked hard repairing all the broken sections of the wall and building towers on it. The wall had been in ruins. The people were vulnerable. Sennacherib and his forces would have found easy entrance into Jerusalem. The wall was in disrepair, evidently under the leadership of Hezekiah's predecessor, his father, Ahaz, who had turned away from God. Hezekiah is going to do a 180 on his father's doings. Hezekiah was not raised by godly parentage. He's a remarkable man because neither his father nor Hezekiah's son walked with God. They walked away from God. There's Hezekiah in the middle. But God's grace is operative. Ever have loved ones walk away from God? Remain true no matter what they do. Hezekiah remains true. 
And so here we find in verse 5 is that he's building actually towers now upon the broken sections of the wall, built another wall outside that one, reinforced it with supporting terraces. And what is absolutely astounding now, as you and I consider even furthermore what we're examining at this point, is that this broad wall that Hezekiah built outside the city was about 65 meters, which has also been excavated in the old city of Jerusalem. And it matches the time period in which Hezekiah ruled, and they have found some pottery shirts inside this wall that take you back to the time of Hezekiah. But that's not all, because archaeology does not refute the Scriptures. Archaeology supports the Scriptures, and if you can embrace then the integrity of God's Word, then you've got to submit to the authority of God's Word, right? You need to for threatening times, you know. The broad wall held another surprise. In an archaeological excavation in the 1970s, within its cusp were the foundations of a house. Look at this next slide. The dwelling was there first in the city wall. It's an ancient example of eminent domain. Was forced to slice through to achieve topographical advantage. But what fascinates me is what Isaiah, Hezekiah's prayer partner, said in his writings. You counted the houses of Jerusalem and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. That's your God. He prepared for you. Are you prepared for him? What's your spiritual preparation like? Just before General Eisenhower, President Eisenhower died, Billy Graham was invited to visit him at Walter Reed Hospital, Washington, D.C. area. He was told by the medical personnel that he could only stay 30 minutes. But when he was about ready to leave, President Eisenhower, you know that big smile you see, pictures of Ike, asked if he could stay a little longer. Billy Graham writes, when the 30 minutes were up, the president asked me to stay longer and said to me, Billy, I want you to tell me again How can I be sure my sins are forgiven and that I'm going to heaven because nothing else matters to me now? Dr. Graham writes, I took my Bible and read him scriptures. I pointed out that we are not going to heaven because of our good works or because of money we've given to local charities, or to our church. We're going to heaven totally and completely on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and therefore he could rest in the comfort that Jesus paid it all. And after prayer, Eisenhower said, Thank you, Billy. Thank you. I'm prepared. There is biblical wisdom in spiritual preparation. 
for the threatening times of today and the final breath still to come in our tomorrows. During threatening times, God's word equips us to make preparations wisely. So if you've come here today and you're not certain whether or not you're prepared to make uh, to meet our Lord, let me just simply say that Jesus died for your sins, yours, mine. And the only basis you have to come into his presence for all of eternity is to put your faith and trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. Have you done that? It's the greatest preparation you can make. So we look at these and we're struck with the fact that what Hezekiah saw here was vulnerability within the wall structures. And the wise person takes time to evaluate the vulnerabilities of our lives. Individually, family-wise, church-wise, nation-wise. As a Senate Intelligence Committee right now examines the latest chatter, And ponders vulnerabilities. Likewise, you and I, when we evaluate ourselves, what we do is we we ponder vulnerabilities and make certain that the walls of our lives, likewise, are constructed adequately for assault in threatening times. If you've done that, or you're doing that, and you are disciplined in spiritual preparations, then we're ready then for this next what I will call biblical equipper. The number two, during threatening times, God's word equips us to evaluate accusations discerningly. Jesus Christ faced accusations in his own threatening times. His opponents pointed fingers at him and spoke of things that Jesus Christ did not say. Applied statements that Jesus Christ should never have been labeled. It's very important that a believer develop what I will call the ability to discern. To discern between true and false, to discern between right and wrong, in this increasingly gray culture. Now, Jerusalem is under siege. And I find when people are under siege, they're extremely vulnerable to their fears. Extremely vulnerable. And they're quick to take dogmatic statements to heart. And they're about to hear some dogmatic statements. But the local news there in Palestine is informing them that Sennacherib's forces have now positioned themselves in the city in the city of Lachish. Look at this next slide that appears now on the screen, if you will. As the accusations are being delivered and you're evaluating accusations discerningly, look at this archaeological find. 
Look carefully. See if you can distinguish the features here. There is a king seated on a throne. Well, that's Sennacherib. Archaeological excavations from Lachish, Jerusalem, and Nineveh, which Bennett will be speaking about tonight. Nineveh show this scene as people are being paraded past Sennacherib. Look at this next slide. Do you see those people that are extended horizontally? They're being carried and stretched out on ropes, paraded before the king, reminded now that they have a so-called sovereign. Judaite prisoners taken from where? Lachish. Time, 701 B.C. This, check it out. Verse 9. Later, when Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and all his forces were laying siege to Lachish, Assyrian warriors with Judaite prisoner at Lachish, he sent his officers to Jerusalem with this message for Hezekiah, king of Judah, and for all the people of Judah who were there. And now what you and I are about to get is a high level of propaganda. Their officials now stand on the Jerusalem walls. Who is most vulnerable to propaganda? The people who live on the Jerusalem wall. In today's modern cities, take New York City or Chicago City, for example. Typically, your poorest of people are at the epicenter of the city, in the very core center of the city. It's called urban segmentation. But the opposite was the case in that time period. The poorest of the poor and the most vulnerable were on the city walls. And the richest were in the core of the city. Why? Because those uh, whose homes were on the walls were the first to be taken captive from invading forces. So now, where does Sennacherib send his officers? to the people whose homes are on the wall, around the wall. In other words, he's looking for vulnerabilities. Likewise, what you and I need to do is to be able to examine very carefully the vulnerabilities of life in our family, in our own souls, in our nation. Because that which is opposed to God's will certainly works hard on vulnerability. And so now, propaganda is delivered in verse 10. One of these officers gets up and he proclaims to those in Jerusalem on the walls at this point, and these words will then be carried into the core of the city. This is what Sennacherib, king of Assyria, says, On what are you basing your confidence that you remain in Jerusalem under siege? When Hezekiah, notice he didn't say King Hezekiah, this Assyrian Ambassador. When Hezekiah says, the Lord our God will save us from the hand of the king of Assyria, he's misleading you to let you die of hunger and thirst. Did not Hezekiah himself remove this God's high places and altars, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, 
You must worship before one altar and burn sacrifices on it. Does he have insider information? Are there traitors in Jerusalem? Are the Assyrians, is there a pipeline whereby info is being passed? That he could say this? Because during the great revival, Hezekiah tore down the altars that his unbelieving father had erected the altars to Baal and established one central altar, and that to Yahweh God. This Assyrian officer seems to know this. Always be aware of vulnerabilities, because evil opposition certainly does. Do you not know, he says now in this next verse, what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of the other lands as they ponder now what was happening in Lachish? And getting closer. Storm clouds approaching. Skies getting darker. Were the gods of those nations ever able to deliver their land from my hand? Verse 14. Who of all the gods of these nations that my fathers destroyed have been able to save his people from me? How then can your God deliver you from my hand? What has he done? He's created a level playing field of spirituality. Beware increasingly in the United States of America of a level playing field of spirituality where Yahweh God is no longer viewed as the exclusive sovereign God. Because God will not be leveled. Astoundingly, in verse 16, Sennacherib's officers spoke further against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. The king also wrote letters insulting the Lord, the God of Israel, saying this against him, Just as the gods of the peoples of the other lands did not rescue their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not rescue his people from my hand. And then they called out in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall. In other words, these Assyrians learned Hebrew so they could be able to communicate in their language. Do you see the subtleties here? Do you see modern contemporary tension here in what we're observing. What they're producing is high levels of propaganda. Ever hear of Tokyo Rose? One of perhaps about 12 English-speaking female broadcasters of Japanese propaganda during World War II intent on disrupting the morale of the Allied forces, listening to the broadcast, and she would break in. And all of a sudden, they would listen as she would begin to describe the effect of their military actions. She was being fed certain information. She would go so far as naming units and even individual soldiers out there on the battlefield. Can you imagine how unnerving that would be? This is the Jerusalem wall moment of the son of Sharib officers creating vulnerabilities. You ever, you ever see the movie, or maybe you acted in it, South Pacific in high school? You know the song, There's Nothing Like a Dame? It's rooted at a certain point in, in the World War II experience, Japan. 
Listen to this quote from the musical. We get packages from home. We get movies. We get shows. We get speeches from our skipper and advice from Tokyo Rose. We've got a Tokyo Rose moment here. Parents, students, single married. What we have to do is to be able to distinguish in the voices of this culture who speaks truth and who is speaking falsely. Satan loves to float a 1% lie and 99% truth. Enough to be able to distort the spiritual flow towards his destination. Beware of the Tokyo Rose effect. As we find now in verse 19, they spoke about the God of Jerusalem as they did about the gods of the other peoples of the world, the work of men's hands. Well, now, back to this outline. We've said so far that during threatening times, God's word equips us to do what? Number one, make preparations wisely. Number two, evaluate assumptions, accusations, claims discerningly. And now for our slide, here's our third thought that we want to be able to process together. That during threatening times, God's word equips us to seek intervention prayerfully. Seek intervention prayerfully. We do this nationally as well as physically. Think nationally now. Look at verse 20. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah. All 66 chapters of that profound book begin with Hezekiah being mentioned in that opening verse of Isaiah's ministry. He was the ultimate shaper of Hezekiah's walk with the Lord. His accountability, buddy. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, cried out in prayer. Do you cry out, period, when storm clouds are approaching? Or do you cry out in prayer to heaven about this? Notice that verse. In verse 21, And the Lord sent an angel who annihilated all the fighting men and the leaders and officers in the camp of the Assyrian king. So he withdrew to his own land in disgrace, and when he went into the temple of his God, some of his sons cut him down with a sword. And what's interesting is that Sennacherib never described this scene of having to retreat, but Herodotus, the historian, did. And evidently a bubonic plague struck right at that time. God, in his timing, sovereignly intervened. Hezekiah now is praying to God and with Isaiah, and they are praying to God, and they are seeking God's intervention nationally. But notice furthermore, he then prays physically. Because in those days now, in verse 24, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death, and he prayed to the Lord, who answered him and gave him a miraculous sign. And if you read in 2 Kings chapter 20, you will find that he prayed at the point of death and God gave him 15 more years. I've been called to many deathbed moments. And there have been times where those around the person 
place hands upon the individual and pray for 15 more years. They call it the Hezekiah prayer. And I've gone back and I've studied the chronology and the time period of Hezekiah, trying to understand why did God give Hezekiah 15 more years? Do you realize that when he became ill, he had no heir? Manasseh had not yet been born. Hadn't God said to David that this kingdom would be an eternal kingdom and that there would be heirs on that throne forever? When you pray, pray biblically. Claim the truths and the promises of the scriptures. This is what Hezekiah does, did, embrace the promise plan of God, God answers the prayer because it is based upon the promise delivered to David. Faith which can't be tested is faith which can't be trusted. Trials come in two forms. Tests from God. Temptations from Satan. But trials are controlled by God. As my former pastor, Warren Wearsby, would put it, he keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. He's able to regulate the heat of our lives. And when we pray in this way, we pray to a God who can intervene. G. Oswald Saunders, in his tremendous book, Spiritual Leadership, informs us of when I was traveling on horseback in China with Fred Mitchell. We came to a spot that was notorious as a robber hideout. The missionary accompanying us was keeping a sharp lookout when suddenly we came upon a body lying beside the path. The victim was obviously not long dead. The brigands had been at work. A few days later, I received a letter from my wife asking whether we had been in danger on a date and at a time that she named. On that particular night, she had been suddenly awakened with a strong impression I was in danger. She rose and prayed until the burden lifted and peace returned. And on consulting my diary, I discovered that this midnight prayer, synchronized with the time we were passing through that robber-infested area, and God heard and answered the prayer for the safety of his servants in the darkness of that night. They call it the night of power. It's the 27th day of Ramadan. But you see, there's one greater than Allah, Yahweh God. And there is a scripture that is completely true, and it's not the Quran. It's your Bible. And when you turn to God's word, having trusted in God's Son, God equips you for threatening times. As the worship team is coming forward, let me lead us in prayer. I praise you and I thank you for who you are. You are the exclusive, sovereign, righteous God.
It is you and you alone worthy of being worshipped. So I'm praying right now for anybody here who, in their own personal, even private sphere of living, feels so overwhelmed with times that seem so intensely threatening. May they take these basic equippers to heart from your word, apply them to life, and live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.